Heavenly Father, we know that the Bible is filled with prophecy. History written in advance. And that because you are the Lord God, because you inhabit eternity, the past and the present and the future are completely known to you. Lord, we know that there's nothing hidden from you, including our lives and our hearts and our circumstances. Lord, you've given us a revelation in the Bible, a revelation about truth, a revelation about our need, a revelation about a Savior, and a revelation about hope. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be given eyes to see. Lord, I pray that we would be given ears to hear. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. It says, And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus or Ketim in the Hebrew shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsook the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame. 
by captivity and plundering. Now, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue, and some of those understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, until it is still for the appointed time. Remember what we've said, that prophecy is history in advance. And if you read the 11th chapter of Daniel, simply as history, you're going to be making a serious error. Because it isn't simply history. It is prophecy. And you've got to understand that when Daniel wrote these words in the 5th century B.C., there would come a time... 300 years of southern kingdoms and northern kingdoms fighting against each other and the people who had returned to Judea and particularly Jerusalem would want to know about these events as they began to unfold. Now the prophecies in the 11th chapter, remember, concern Ahasuerus, who was the Persian king, Alexander, the Greek king, Antiochus the Great, who is the king of the north, and, of course, Ptolemy in the south. But there's another leader who's going to be focused on, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we've already talked about Antiochus Epiphanes at great length in um, chapter 10. Verses 21 through 25 are devoted to this figure who looms large in the Jewish mind, Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the Antiochus who will go into Jerusalem, spoil the temple, destroy, if you will, the altar, put in an altar to Zeus. And three years later, after the Maccabean revolt, they will cleanse the temple. One will take place on December 14th, the cleansing will take place on December 14th, and until this very day, um, Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah, or the rededication of the temple. Now, just very quickly, beginning in verse 36, we're going to see the rise of the Antichrist in verses 36 through 39. We're going to see the tribulation in chapter 12, verse 1. War and invasions in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. The Battle of Armageddon, chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. So when we get to that section, we'll focus on the Battle of Armageddon. The return of Jesus to defeat the Antichrist at the end of verse 45. The resurrection of the dead in chapter 12, verse 2. The instigation of the glorious kingdom in chapter 12, verse 3. But for now, the king's become a type and a picture of a future king. And the Bible gives this future king, who is future not only in the book of Daniel, but is future to you, several different names. He's called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. And here in chapter 11, verse 36, he is called the willful king. In the New Testament, he's called the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. The son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the wicked one in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And he's called the beast in, chapter, uh, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. 
There is a future king who will emerge on the scene. Ultimately, it will be his plan to usurp God and to thwart the plan of God. It was Cory ten Boom who lost loved ones in World War II. She herself uh, hid Jews during the Nazi Holocaust. And she once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And you might be a little bit upset. You might be a little uneasy. As you see the events begin to unfold in the Middle East and all around the world and even in our own country, and you begin to ask, well, what's going on? Carl F.H. Henry said, the final chapter of human history is solely God's decision. And even now, he is everywhere active in grace and in judgment. Never in all of history have men spoken so much of the end time, yet been so shrouded in ignorance of God's impending doomsday. Guess what? We're still living in a time of grace. And as I'm fond of telling you, grace precedes judgment. Even though there's a lot of uncertainty, guess what? God is at work. Now, there's a strange melding of the past and the future in the prophecies surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes. And like I said, some Bible study lessons are harder than others. In school, was calculus your favorite subject? That's the one person who goes, yeah. You know, I only got as far as algebra too. And Euclidean geometry and calculus is just like... And I know for some of you, Daniel chapter 11 is... But remember what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Remember, Paul writing to Timothy, he said, Study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I would be lying to you if I told you that some Bible studies... Or all Bible studies are easy. Not all Bible studies are easy. Some are harder than others. But guess what? Even Peter wrote, hey, sometimes the Scripture is difficult to understand. The inspiration of Scripture doesn't always mean it's going to inspire. Just like food. All food may be edible. But not all food is incredible. All Scripture is inspired. But you may not be inspired by today's Bible study. But let's just see where we go with this. Now remember also, this is prophecy. The Bible declares that there is a God, not just aware, but fully, completely, totally, aware of the future. I have to ask you a hard question. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God not only knows the future, but He knows your future? Every day, of every week, of every month. And that's going to become important. Now remember what else I told you. 
that from Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12, it's all part of one unified vision. Remember when we began our study in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying that the plan of God would be fulfilled. And Daniel's prayer in the invisible and internal circumstances of his life becomes visible in the manifestation of the wars and the and 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 the, the the kingdoms fighting for one another as Satan tries to usurp the plan of God. And so again, Daniel's vision reminds us just how unstable the kingdoms of the earth really are. By the way, why do you suppose evil is always unstable? I'm going to suggest something to you. Number one, because evil has at its very core a commitment to undermine the plan of God, and so it contains the seeds of its own destruction. And by the way, whenever you embark on a course in your own life that is apart from the plan of God, make no mistake about it, it will fail. It should fail. It's supposed to fail. Because we are here to cooperate with the plan of God. By the way, the gods haven't changed, at least in part. The ancient Greeks in the Macedonian kingdom may have worshipped Zeus and Aphrodite and Hera. But guess what? The gods that are worshipped in our generation are ambition and power uh, and fame and sexual activity and possessions. And the king gets a foothold in the people of God. And that's what we're going to see. Antiochus gets a foothold, if you will, in the plan of God, in the people of God, in the, the people of Jerusalem. And there's a reason why Antiochus had such great success both in Judea and Jerusalem because there were people who embraced his vision. And the reason why that becomes important to you is because evil can gain a foothold with the people of God when it finds a spirit of cooperation in the people of God. The same is true in your heart. And the same is true in, in your family. And the same is true in your church. Antiochus found in Jerusalem people who loved what he loved. Greek culture. Greek language. But make no mistake, if you happen to love Greek culture and Greek language, is that evil in and of itself? No. But you know what is evil? It's a mindset. that It's a worldview that sets itself in opposition to, to the plan of God and the things of God. And so the people in love with Greek language and culture and Greek worldview and the Greek gods provided an entree for Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Question. Are we also in danger? Is it possible that there is a church that begins to love the things that this world loves and value the things that this world values and honors the things that this world honors. And so again, remember, 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 the aim of wickedness and evil is to destroy the people of God. And again, the kingdom of darkness never seems to learn its lesson. Man proposes... God disposes. 
Satan will oppose the plan of God. The people in the world will oppose the plan of God. But in the end, the plan of God will succeed. And so look again in verse 21. It says, And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Antiochus Epiphanes IV was a wicked man. He is one of those kind of guys who would make Caligula blush. He's a kind of guy who, if Hitler and Antiochus Epiphanes got into the same room, they would be hard-pressed to determine which was more wicked. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes had no right to the throne. He didn't deserve leadership. He killed the opposition on his way through deceit and treachery. And his name, Antiochus, he chose the name Epiphanes. And the reason why he chose that name is it was a Greek name that meant the glorious manifestation of the gods or God or the glorious one. In other words, he called himself, and to this very day, if you get coins of, of Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth, right on the coin it says Antiochus Epiphanes. It means the glorious one or he who claimed, he who says that he is God. And that's that's exactly who he claims to be. But the Jews gave him the name Antiochus Epimenes. It's a play on the Greek word. Epiphany means God with us. Epimene means nutcase, madman. It meant a person who didn't have both oars in the water. And so, yeah, this guy was a full-on nut burger. And so they called him Antiochus the Madman. And like I said, we've talked about him as, at great length, he refers to himself as glorious and illustrious, but the Bible calls him vile, wretched, contemptible, despicable. Now, this becomes an important lesson right from the... From the start, you remember in the book of Revelation, as Jesus addresses the churches, they, they, they themselves will say, well, we're, we're rich and we don't need anything. And Jesus says, you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. Make no mistake about it. The best assessment of who you are and what you are is found in Christ. Now, he obviously hated the Jews and he sought to exterminate them. So the prophecy begins on how Antiochus IV acquires the throne. He doesn't inherit the throne. He seizes the throne through manipulation and guile and intrigue. And I know this is going to be lost on most of you. But let me try and, and, and help you understand what it is that you're reading. There was a man named Seleucus IV. He was the brother of Antiochus IV. Seleucus IV had a son named Demetrius. Seleucus IV, Philopater, remember Philopater means I love my dad. That's right. He died and left the kingdom to his son, Demetrius. He died in 175 BC. Demetrius becomes the lawful heir to the throne of the Syrian kingdom. But remember, Demetrius was being held hostage in Rome, so his uncle, Antiochus IV, was placed in charge of the government in his absence, and in the months that followed, Antiochus began a plan of how he could seize the throne. Now, 
Originally, Antiochus IV was held hostage in Rome. The reason why this becomes important is because he understood what it meant to be a prisoner. And he understood what it, what it meant to be under house arrest, so to speak. And he was there because his brother Seleucus took the Syrian throne after Antiochus the Great. And part of the penalty was that they had to raise money in order to pay the Roman government. In Syria, perhaps thinking that his contacts in Rome could get him better terms for the impoverished kingdom, Seleucus arranges to send Demetrius in exchange for Antiochus. He sends his own son back to Rome brings his brother back, and while his brother is passing through Athens, he hears that his brother has been murdered by Heliodorus, the tax collector. Heliodorus, the tax collector, proclaims himself to be the king. John Phillips writes, quote, That claim was immediately contested by Ptolemy Philomedor, the new king of Egypt, that's the king in the south, who claimed the Syrian throne on the ground that his mother, Cleopatra, was the sister of Seleucus. Antiochus dismissed both the claim of Heliodorus, the usurper, and the claim of his nephew, Ptolemy. If anyone had the right to the throne, he thought it was him, and he was determined to get it back. So he's on Athens, and he's on his way, and clearly Antiochus is a royal person, but he doesn't get the throne through legitimate means. It's his deep desire to bring Greek worldview, Greek language, Greek culture to his entire kingdom. And there's one particular group of people who keep resisting him. Who do you suppose it is? The Jews. The Jews say, there's one God. The Greeks say, there are many gods. The Jews say that God has revealed himself by Moses. The Greeks say the, the gods reveal themselves from time to time. The Jews say that sin is a problem and they offer sacrifices for sin. And the Greeks say we're beautiful people. And we're fine just the way that we are. There's a clash. There's a fundamental clash of the way you look at the world and the outlook of the world. It was Antiochus's goal to make the Jews good Greek citizens, adopt the language and adopt the culture. It's happened in every generation. Remember, I already talked about it. Paul writes about it in the book of Romans where he says, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are living in a world that is deeply committed to squeezing you into the mold of this world. Now, we see the picture of the coming Antichrist's power in this person. In verse 22, it says, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. You're going to see the word covenant appear several times in the 11th chapter. Usually when you hear that word, you think of an agreement, a holy agreement that God makes with his people. In this instance, it doesn't necessarily mean a holy agreement that God makes with his people, but rather a treaty. 
that the Antichrist, in this particular place, Antiochus, makes with the surrounding nations. Now, the force of the flood, when it says, with the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him, simply refers to the removal of all the barriers and opposition that Antiochus faces. In history, this may refer to the, to the armies of Heliodorus, which were swept away. Now, there was another little kingdom right next to his kingdom called the Kingdom of Pergamum in modern Turkey. There were two, two brothers, Eumenes and Attalus. As a matter of fact, some of you are going to be familiar with the city of Pergamum because it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. This is the place where Satan has his throne. It's a little tiny kingdom, but it's a very powerful kingdom. And the reason why it's a powerful kingdom is because they've invented parchment. They have the parchment concession for the entire world. So... In history, Eumenes and Attalus defeat Heliodorus and they put their friend Antiochus IV as the king of Syria. Some people think it might refer to the forces that remained loyal to Demetrius. Others think it might refer to the Egyptian armies near Pelusium. Whatever it means, it means that Antiochus, his enemies, the obstacles are removed and he's placed in power. The reason why that becomes important to you is you might ask and answer the question, well, why does evil seem to succeed? You've all heard the quote by Edmund Burke that if good people don't do anything, evil will get away with everything. So why do bad things happen? Why is it that Satan seems to be given a little foothold? Hey, guess what? There are times of plans and purging and testing. Even in the New Testament, do you remember? Paul writes that some will fall. John writes, some went out from among us. I'm sad. Every time I hear about people who abandon their friendship and fellowship with Jesus and they go back out into the world and they just continue to live their lives quite apart from God. Almost immediately after Antiochus secured the throne of his nephew, there was again Ptolemy Philometer, who is the king or the pharaoh in Egypt. There is a war that takes place. Ptolemy Philomater makes a failed attempt to recover the territories that were previously lost to Syria. And there's going to be a series of three wars that take place between Syria and Egypt over the course of a generation. And it becomes very difficult even for historians because you have to ask, is this a reference to the first Egyptian war? Is this a reference to the second Egyptian war? Is this a reference to the third Egyptian war? And we're going to try and make sense of it. The million dollar question is, with the force of the flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. Who is that prince? Who's the prince of the covenant? Now, some people believe that this is Onias III, who happens to be the high priest in Judea and in Jerusalem. The reason why, again, this becomes important, not just in the past, but in the future, is that there is going to be a future Antichrist. And the future Antichrist is going to make covenants and treaties. 
The Bible seems to indicate that he's going to make the covenants and the treaties with the groups of people that surround the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Antiochus makes a covenant with Onias III. Now, one of the very first things that Antiochus IV does as he deposes as he becomes the king, as he deposes Onias III, because Onias III, um, he opposed the pro-Syrian, pro-Greek contingent. So the very first thing that he does is he takes Onias III and he removes him from power because Onias III is not pro-Syrian, he's pro-Egyptian. Now you have to understand something. In this time in history, after the Jews have returned to Babylon, had begun to rebuild the temple, you had two kinds of Jews. Faithful Jews and unfaithful Jews. You had faithful Jews and apostate Jews. Why is that important? Because just like in our world, there are Christians and there are Christians who are Christians in name only. A lot of people go to church, don't they? A lot of people celebrate church holidays. They celebrate the Bible. But they don't have a real relationship with God. And so Antiochus deposes this particular person because his loyalties were towards Ptolemy in the south. This high priest is murdered. This high priest has a brother named Jason. Jason is the brother who now pays a gigantic amount of money to Antiochus to occupy the office of high priest. Remember what we we talked about that last week, too. That Chicago did not invent purchasing parties, uh, offices for parties. In other words, a lot of people have paid over history bribes and they paid a substantial bribe to Antiochus IV to become the high priest. And Jason was a big supporter of the Greek presence. Now, you have to understand something. Understand, understand what I'm about to say. You would think that the high priest in Jerusalem would love God, would love the things of God, would love the word of God, would love the people of God. But he didn't love the word of God and he didn't love the people of God. He loved Greek culture and he loved Greek society and he loved Greek power and Greek ambition. And you know what he started to do? Moving the Jewish people to not circumcise their children, not obey the law, not believe the word of God. Doesn't that sound Incredible that a religious person, a so-called spiritual leader, would get up in front of the congregation and say, you know, the Bible is a wonderful book filled with great stories, but none of it is true. Are there churches like that? There are. As a matter of fact, it's becoming more and more rare for the pastor to get up and open the Bible and say, This is the Word of God. It's God-breathed. This is God's communication. God is communicated by the Word of God. 
Now, the other candidate for the prince of the covenant is Ptolemy, Philometer, who is, at this point, the pharaoh in Egypt, the king of Egypt. Remember, Antiochus wants Egypt for himself, so he signs a peace treaty with the young Egyptian king to lull him into a false sense of security. Antiochus then proceeds with the goal. He is spouting a rhetoric of love, peace, peace, love, dove, bells, beads, pot, incense, crash pads, water beds. Hey, we're all here, and we are a peace-loving people. We want peace in the empire. But in his heart of hearts, he wants to occupy Egypt. He wants to consolidate the empire. He wants to bring back the Macedonian ideal of a united world under Greek language, Greek culture, and Greek worldview. Do you understand what's happening? He wants a one world government. And he wants a one-world government with him as the leader of the world. You guys grew up with the song, Everybody wants to rule the world. It's true, really. And so he becomes again a type of the Antichrist. But he wants to lull his young nephew into a false sense of security. And so he starts talking about peace and love and goodwill. And he goes into the mouth of the Nile. And he goes down the Nile Valley. And he winds up in Memphis. And there he strengthens his army. He enters literally peaceably, even into the fattest or the fairest places of the province. And then in verse 23 it says, And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. In other words, Antiochus IV, he's anticipating a war with Rome down the way. He makes this agreement treaty um, with Attalus and Eumenes, who are the kings of, of Pergamum. He signs the treaty with his nephew in Egypt. He secures his throne. He quite literally goes from a nobody to the king of one of the largest empires in the world. And it becomes a type and a picture of the Antichrist who will, like a nobody, become a somebody. How many of you have ever heard of Barack Obama when was Barack Obama first introduced to the American people? He was a guest speaker at the Democratic National Convention. And he gave this amazing speech. And he ran against a friend of mine for the Senate seat in Illinois. Who knows who he ran against in Illinois? Alan Keyes is exactly right. Alan Keyes, Barack Obama, Barack Obama defeated Alan Keyes and won the Senate seat. He had been a state senator for one term and a United States senator for 18 months and then he began his presidential campaign. He went quite literally from being a nobody to the president-elect of the United States. Am I suggesting he's the Antichrist? I am not suggesting it even one tiny bit. What I am pointing out to you is how quickly circumstances can change in a world where you are a nobody and you can become somebody. And as dramatic as the transformation 
of Barack Obama. That's how dramatic the transformation of Antiochus Epiphanes was. And so, he becomes rich and powerful out of nowhere. And then in verse 24 it says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. That means he goes peaceably. And guess where he winds up? He winds up in the Galilee. He winds up in Egypt. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches. He shall devise his plans against the strong ones, but only for a time. Now think carefully. He goes into his nephew's kingdom peaceably. He does what his fathers have not done. For, for those of you who were with me the last time, remember I told you that for 300 years, the Syrian kings fought against the Egyptian kings, fighting, fighting all the time, balance of power going back and forth, back and forth. But he does what the Antiochen or the Syrian kings were never able to do. He swallows up most of the Egyptian empire. And when it talks about, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, he takes advantage of, of, of almost the entire Ptolemaic Empire. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, and the riches. As he's taking these great spoils from Egypt, guess what? He starts sharing the wealth with all of his family and friends who supported him in his rise to power. Now, I've got to tell you something. That's unusual. The reason why it's unusual, because kings in the ancient world, guess what they usually did with their riches? They kept it for themselves. But this guy was all, all about economic redistribution. So we don't have Joe the plumber in Pergamum. We have Atlas and Humanus. Hey, let's... Let's share some of this wealth. Let's spread the wealth around. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds. The strongholds become very, very important because there were several stronghold cities in Egypt. There's four of them. And he'll capture three of them, but I'll talk about that later. Antiochus, under the pretense of peace, invades Galilee, then he invades the lower Egypt. He does what no one else has ever been able to do. He secures the control of Egypt and he does something else. He lavishes riches on the people. He influences the people. He bribes his enemies. And Ptolemy, his nephew, is like a bird before a cobra. Have you guys ever seen movies where the cobra snake is, you know, you, you hear and you see the, the snake swaying back and forth and this bird like its eyes are glazed over. And if you ever watch the animal planet or stuff and you go, that bird is toast. Ptolemy was trapped by his uncle's stare. It's like he comes in and he just quite literally starts taking over everything. And the secret plans of the Syrian ruler was to capture and occupy the fortress cities, Pelusium, Nocratus, Alexandria, and Memphis. And he captures all of them, except for Alexandria. For whatever reason, Alexandria is the city right on the mouth of the Nile as, as, it, as it meets the Mediterranean. And he's never quite able to capture it. It says, but only for a time. Look, it says, but only for a time. He has success. But only for a time. Now, this is important to you. 
Because the people who are reading and they see like Hitler taking over Europe, they see Antiochus taking over everything. Is anything going to stop them? Is anything going to be able to stop them? The king could, so far as anyone could see, he was unstoppable. And the same will be true of the Antichrist in the future. It will appear that he'll get to go where he wants to go and do what he wants to do. And that's got to be frustrating for some of you. Because sometimes in our lives, it looks like evil overwhelms us and has its way with us. God, why did you allow my husband or my wife to leave? Why did you allow my husband to go to prison? Why did you allow this person to die? Why did you allow the drugs and the alcohol to kill this person? How is it possible? How is it possible that the wickedness and the evil could be so overwhelming? And you know what happens to some people when they're overwhelmed by evil? They sometimes say, why bother? cares hey if Satan is going to get his way anyway I might as well have some fun in the deal and that will be one of the biggest challenges that you will ever have to remain faithful to the Lord God and to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ to remain faithful under opposition and pain and that's exactly what Antiochus is going to bring to the city of Jerusalem And so we see the conquest of the coming Antichrist. Look in verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle and a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand for they shall devise plans against him. Basically, Antiochus mobilized his army. He marches against Egypt. But the Egyptian king awoke out of his stupor. And all of a sudden he goes, Dude, my uncle's the Antichrist. He doesn't love me and he doesn't care about me. And he's trying to swallow my kingdom whole. So Ptolemy quickly amasses an army to match the size and strength of the Syrian king. And the first encounter takes place at one of those fortress cities called Pelusium. It's a great fortress near Mount Cassius. And Ptolemy, the king of the south, lost. Another battle followed. Again, Ptolemy loses. Antiochus captures Pelusium and Memphis. But again, Alexandria is out of his grasp. And then in verse 26, it says, Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. Speaking of the king of the south, his army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. In other words, part of the reason why Ptolemy lost these battles is because there were people who betrayed him in his own camp. The people closest to him, his advisors, the advisors to the king, kept giving him bad information. Antiochus was able to seduce. Their names were Julius and Linnaeus. And and basically, these were Ptolemy's guardians. And they betrayed him. And in verse 27 it says, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for in the end will stand at the appointed time. Now you've got to understand something. Ptolemy's brother is in Memphis, and he's standing against the Antiochian army. So Antiochus sits down in Memphis with his 
little nephew, Ptolemy, and says, hey, look, we've had some problems. We've had some disagreements. Let's sit at the table and try to work things out. It says both these kings in their hearts are bent on evil. Does Antiochus have goodness in his heart? No. Does Ptolemy have goodness in his heart? No. They both speak lies. Now, again, it would seem that many in leadership in Egypt began to despair of their gullible and ineffective king. So they switch their loyalty to Ptolemy's brother. His name was Fiscon Yergetes, just for your information. He repulsed the armies of Syria and Alexandria. So they sit down at the table to hash out a plan. And the uncle says, hey, you know, your brother, the reason why he, everybody loves your brother now. You know, he's going to try to become the king of Egypt. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm your uncle. We shouldn't fight like this. I love you and care about you. You should be the rightful king of Egypt. I'll deal with your brother in Alexandria. But Ptolemy knew that his uncle was the Antichrist. He pretends to go along with it secretly until Antiochus goes back to Syria, but in a plan to outwit him, he reconciles with his brother in Alexandria, and then both of them unite together against their uncle. And they issue a joint proclamation. And then they predicted that the coming king would try to invade them again, and they were right. Antiochus was cunning and crafty and cruel. Just like another enemy who's cunning and crafty and cruel. It'll immediately be fulfilled in the Antichrist. And I want you to think just for a moment. God sent his son into the world to save the world. Satan sends his sons to usurp the plan of God. Having predicted his contempt and his cunning and his craftiness and his conquest, he now predicts his cruelty. Look in verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Now, there are historical problems between some people, the Greek accounts and the Jewish accounts. Is this part of the second war or the third war? I'm going to suggest to you while returning to the land, is prob there's, there's three wars that take place. This is, I believe, during the second war. And the reason why, excuse me, this is the third war. And the reason why is I've told you all the story about how these two brothers will make an appeal to Rome to protect them against the kingdoms of the north. And that's exactly what will happen. The source's main contention is whether this takes place during the first Egyptian war, which is September of 169 B.C., or the second war, which is the spring of 168 B.C. Not all Jews were serving the Lord. Many were apostate. Because they adopted the culture and the religion, they went and he hires a mercenary named Apollonius. And they march into Jerusalem. And a rumor had spread that Antiochus was killed in battle. And they were rejoicing and celebrating over the news that he was dead. 
Jason, who had been deposed by Antiochus, decided, okay, ding dong, the witch is dead, the witch is dead, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. I am going to take my throne back as the high priest of Jerusalem. Remember, there was two kinds of high priests, those that sided with the kingdom of the north and those that sided with the kingdom of the south. Do you know what both of them had in common? They both opposed the real and true plan of God. So Jason, who had been deposed by Antiochus, decided this is a great time to depose Menelaus, who had paid Antiochus for the office of the high priest. Jason mobilized a thousand mercenaries, marched on Jerusalem, captured the city, forced Menelaus back into his castle. Antiochus chose to regard this as a revolt. He hires the mercenaries. They go in and they kill 40,000 Jews. They enslave 40,000 more. They plunder the temple to the tune of 1,800 talents. Now, you may not know how much 1,800 talents are, but a talent was an amount of money that a very wealthy person could make in a lifetime. It was the tribute that was paid between nations to one another, if you will. Jason fled. Menelaus was confirmed as the puppet high priest of Antiochus. And he was pleased. He was pleased, pleased, pleased because he had a high priest who denied the Bible, who denied the sacrifices, and who denied the Jewish people's access to the word of God and to the promises of God and to the Messiah of God and Antiochus began to insult the holiness and majesty of the living God and he took a pig and he brought it into the sanctuary and he slit the pig's throat on the brazen altar then what was left of the pig he boiled it so that he could make pig juice now this may not sound very appetizing to you but guess what he does with the pig juice he paints it on every portion of the temple. Now, pigs are what? Right. Can the Jews use any portion of the temple? No. It's rendered inoperable. Antiochus takes the treasure of Egypt. He takes the treasure of Jerusalem. And he spreads it to his friends. And look at verse 29. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. The prophecy continues with the crimes. He goes back to Egypt. Ptolemy and the brother of reconciled, they now join forces. The campaign is absent in the text, but after the war, the two brothers unite in order to oppose their evil uncle, they need a strong ally. It says, they so they hire mercenaries to reinforce their own troops, and they send an embassy to Rome to appeal for help. And this takes place in the spring of 168 B.C. Antiochus goes back with all of his new wealth, his new armies, with a renewed vision to finally unite the kingdom. And it says, for ships from Cyprus shall be against them. The word, like I said, is ketim. And Antiochus orders the complete surrender of the island of Crete, the island of Cyprus, 
but many, many people believe that these are ships. In that time, in, in, the, in the 5th century, Ketim didn't just mean Cyprus. It meant the shores or the borders of the Mediterranean, the shores. So this, I believe, is a mention the term came to mean both the island and the coastlands of the Mediterranean. So I believe he's actually means the Romans. And in, in, at that time, the Roman consul comes to Alexandria. Remember, this is the one last city that he has yet to swallow into his empire. And this is the time when the Roman consul, basically, in order representing the Senate, as Antiochus is approaching, he draws a circle around Antiochus. And because Antiochus says, Hey, um, I have to check with my advisors on whether or not we should withdraw our troops. And the Roman consul said, either you can't leave the circle until, until, we, until you agree to leave. He's humiliated. As he's humiliated, he goes back. And even though he's already created barbaric acts against the Jewish people, now he goes back with a fury and a vengeance and he begins to kill all of the people of Jerusalem and enslave all of the people of Jerusalem and then these barbaric acts begin to take place as he murders and massacres hundreds of thousands of people the temple is defiled he outlaws circumcision and the observance of the Jewish faith in its entirety and I've already told you the story of how one woman with seven children um defies him and circumcises her child and he slits the child's throat and takes the child and hangs it around her, his mother's neck, marches him to the top of the temple walls and pushes her off and this sets in motion a thing called the Maccabean Revolt. And the reason why this becomes important is, look it says in verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by them, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. That means Jerusalem. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices. The temple becomes useless. And the abomination of desolation. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks about in the New Testament. Now remember what it says in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 concerning the abomination which makes desolate. That's a way of Jesus saying sacrifice and temple worship becomes no more. And the idol that was set up in the temple was Zeus. He identified with a Syrian deity called Baal, Shaman. And he sets this up in the temple. And in verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Verse 32, it's a prophecy concerning the Maccabean revolt. And that story is found in First and Second Maccabees. Why, again, why is this important? In every age, in every generation, you'll have two kinds of people. Those who stand strong for God and those who cave under the pressure of the wickedness and the terror and the horror. It says... In verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. For three 
uninterrupted years, Antiochus kills them, burns them, enslaves them. Why is that important to you? Because again, in the future, there will be an Antichrist who for three years will have unprecedented access, burning, killing, enslaving. And there will be two kinds of people, those who cooperate with him and those who oppose him. Now again, why is this important? God has a plan. The plan of God in Jerusalem includes a temple. The plan of God includes sacrifice, and the plan of God also includes a Messiah. Antiochus, I believe, was demonically possessed and committed to an agenda to exterminate the Jews. And verse 34 says, Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. The Maccabees were, were helped very, very briefly in their opposition to Antiochus. But for the most part, they were on their own. The world will from time to time offer support and encouragement to the Christian. But almost always it's too little, too late. And in verse 35 it says, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Reread that. And some of those of understanding shall fall. Is it possible that you can be completely familiar with the Bible and the promises in the Bible and understand these principles in the Bible and you yourself fall victim to wickedness and evil? Paul writes and he says, Take heed. Those of you who think that you stand, lest you fall but even if some do fall look what it says they will be aided with a little help but many shall join by intrigue and then it says and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them and make them white the reason why this becomes important to you is sometimes when you fail the failure isn't to point out what a big fat stinking failure you are it's to purify you it's to refine you. Sometimes in our pride, in our rebellion, in our disobedience, we need to get back on track. And God will allow failure, mistakes. But do you know what's wonderful for the Christian? A failure. And the mistake doesn't mean the end. Because there's always an opportunity to get up. It says until the end, the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Well, you know what that means? Some of you are going to be hurt. Some of you are going to be purged. Some of you are going to be cleansed. Some of you are going to face overwhelming opposition. But guess what? 
the plan of God is intact. The plan of God is still in place. The plan that God has for you has not come undone. And by the way, after verse 35, the prophecy shifts. And even though I don't have time because we're going to go over this the next time, there's no known historical sequence corresponding to the verses between verse 36 and 40. Antiochus IV is killed in battle in Persia in December 164. In December 164, the Jews rededicate their temple. Verse 36, 37, 38, 39, and 40 fit no known historical circumstance. So I think it has to refer to the future. A future that we'll talk about the next time we get together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that wickedness and evil opposes the plan of God and opposes you. Lord, we know that wickedness and evil has within it the seeds of its own destruction. But there's an appointed time. There may seem to be an appointed time when wickedness and evil has its way. There may seem to be an appointed time where nothing seems to go right. But Lord, we know it will come to an end. We know that you have a plan and a purpose. That sometimes we are tried. And sometimes we are tested. And sometimes, like the friends of Daniel in the fire, or even Daniel in the lion's den, we face what seems like a hopeless circumstance. But Lord, whether we perish in the flame, or whether we are consumed by the animals, we know that, Lord, in the end, you have a plan for your people. And in the end, the plan is... Jesus Christ will be both King and Lord in heaven and in earth. With Paul, we say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God. And Lord, we anticipate that in the not too distant future. In Jesus' name. Amen.